You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. MagnaBur ransomware spreads. LabCorp discloses suspicious activity on its networks. The Pentagon will add cybersecurity checks to its test and evaluation process. Siemens updates customers on Spectre and Meltdown. Oracle's quarterly patch bulletin is out. There's fallout, clarifications, and more fallout from the Helsinki summit. And U.S. agencies continue preparations to secure elections and infrastructure. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 18, 2018. MagnaBur ransomware, which has for some time been endemic in South Korea, has spread in new variants to other East Asian linguistic communities. Chinese-speaking users in Macau, Singapore, and Malaysia are held to be newly targeted by the criminal campaign. U.S. medical diagnostics provider LabCorp has sustained a potential data breach that could expose the medical records of millions of patients. LabCorp, the largest company of its kind in the United States, disclosed the breach to the Securities and Exchange Commission in a Form 8K dated this Monday. The company said in its filing that it detected suspicious activity on its network over this past weekend, responded by taking some systems offline in accordance with its comprehensive response. They do warn that some customers may experience brief delays in receiving the results while LabCorp completes remediation. The company said that, quote, at this time there is no evidence of unauthorized transfer or misuse of data, end quote. The concern, obviously, is that sensitive records may have been lost. LabCorp subsidiary coverage drug development was unaffected by the incident. When these kinds of breaches occur, the data often ends up on the dark web. But what does that really mean, and how do you protect your organization against it? Jonathan Cooch is Senior Vice President of Strategy at Threat Quotient, and he helps bring us up to speed. I think there's a lot of misperceptions about what it really is. Uh, out there on the Internet, you have the, the regular Internet that most people interact with. And those are the sites that you can go to Google, you can do searches, and it'll point you to Wikipedia or news sites or whatever it happens to be. Uh, then there are those websites that are unindexed. And by unindexed, what I mean is uh, that Google will not crawl those sites to find out information. So corporate intranets uh, are an example of that, or uh, private companies or subscription services, things that are behind some sort of authentication, uh, that Google will not scrape those sites and you won't be able to find them through regular web searches. And that's what's called typically the, the deep web. Um, the dark web is kind of its own special little place. Uh, that not only is unindexed, but typically you require special software uh, in order to access those, those websites. So, you know, the Onion Router, what's known as Tor, 
uh, is the most popular way to, to get into those uh, websites. And what that does is it provides you an encryption mechanism uh, to provide anonymous web browsing so that using a Tor client, uh, I can go out and I can visit websites, but those websites don't know who I am. They don't know where I came from or, or, or where I'm making the requests. And so, you know, this whole concept of, of the dark web was really to provide anonymity uh, around web surfing. And it has grown to really be a haven for cybercrime and, and cyber criminals. And so what you find on the dark web are a lot of websites that are selling wares uh, that are illegal uh, to be sold elsewhere. Uh, because they have this anonymity, it's very difficult to figure out, you know, where these websites are actually located, who's hosting them, the people behind it, and the infrastructure that that, that surrounds it. So, why should it be important uh, to uh, people looking to defend their organizations? Uh, what's the concern there? So, the concern is really being able to find out what the threats do. Uh, you know, if you want to know what your adversary knows, uh, if you want, as an organization, if I'm holding a lot of information, if I have a lot of credit card numbers uh, that my organization relies on in order to protect and, and make money. Uh, off of. I want to be able to see, do criminals have my credit card numbers? Are they reselling them uh, on the underground? Uh, if I am operating a certain kind of database, uh, if there are tools that kind of, that exploit that database, that can break in and steal information from that database, I want to know about the existence of those tools and, and how they're being, being utilized. And the dark web is kind of that marketplace. It's that black market that people can go and be able to sell those kinds of capabilities, but also sell that information and data. It's not a kind of place where you just want to go and, and interact and that your organization may want to have direct contact with. A lot of times, you'll want to interact more with third-party organizations, experts that live and operate within the dark web day in and day out, uh, so that you can now leverage their expertise and their knowledge to provide you that intelligence, to provide you that information of here is what we found, and you as an organization can then focus in, rather than uh, putting your resources and your people and technology toward going out there and trying to set up this infrastructure and collect and monitor the dark web, you can now just take the information coming from these third-party providers and be able to take a look at it and say, all right, what applies to me? What am I interested in? Uh, and so it really saves you time, efficiency, and resources uh, from being able to, to have to go out there and do it yourself. That's Jonathan Cooch from Threat Quotient. The U.S. Department of Defense intends to add cybersecurity checks to the test and evaluation phases of its acquisition cycle. It intends to conduct more of its own testing and will not rely upon contractor certification that their systems are secure against cyber attack. Siemens has updated its security guidance on the Spectre and Meltdown chipset vulnerabilities, warning of new variants and promising software and firmware updates to address them, Users of Siemens products have been asked to stay alert for coming fixes and to apply them promptly. Oracle's quarterly patch update was released yesterday. It addresses 334 vulnerabilities, which the SANS Institute calls a record. Vulnerabilities in WebLogic, Oracle Spatial, and Oracle Fusion Middleware Map Viewer are rated as particularly significant. Attacks on WebLogic servers have figured in cryptojacking campaigns over the past year, and such attacks are expected to continue against unprotected systems. At a mid-afternoon press conference yesterday, U.S. President Trump walked back remarks he made at the conclusion of his summit with Russian President Putin, 
which gave the impression that he accepted Mr. Putin's word over that of U.S. intelligence services, apparently agreeing that Russia had not attempted to influence U.S. elections. Mr. Trump's remarks in Helsinki were roundly criticized from all political sides. The president said that he either misspoke or was misheard, and that he believes what the U.S. intelligence community has concluded about Russian influence operations. The U.S. intelligence community, including its current leadership appointed under this president, has reiterated that it stands by its assessment. Mr. Putin did a bit of woofing about conducting a joint Russo-American investigation into the Russian influence operations he insists didn't happen. Again, essentially, nobody thinks this is a particularly promising idea. It's a familiar gambit in Russian information operations. Deny involvement, offer to cooperate in a joint investigation, and then use the veneer of legitimacy the joint investigation confers to cover over what would otherwise be a bald and unconvincing denial. Similar misdirection has been seen recently in Russian insistence on participating in an international investigation of the nerve agent attacks in the United Kingdom. There is, or was, a 1999 treaty under which the U.S. and Russian Federation agreed to join investigation of certain crimes, but observers have called that agreement a dead letter. As Sean Sullivan of security firm F-Secure told The Register, quote, that sort of thing halted years ago after the FBI found that the Russians were recruiting rather than arresting and investigating the criminal leads forwarded to the FSB, unquote. So, while there's undoubtedly some scope for international cooperation in cyberspace, this wouldn't appear to be one of them. Consensus is that the U.S. would have much to lose and nothing to gain. Many investigators and media outlets are reviewing the course the Russian information operations took during the last election. Spearfishing against poorly protected networks is generally thought to have been the principal means by which discreditable emails were obtained and made public. The public leaks were generally achieved through various false personae and distributed through trolling social media accounts and similar channels. There will certainly be additional U.S. measures taken to protect elections and infrastructure from cyber attack. NSA and U.S. Cyber Command were last week directed by their head, General Paul Nakasone, to coordinate actions to counter Russian attempts to interfere with midterm elections, this lying within the organization's authorities. Other agencies, including the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI, are, according to the Washington Post, taking similar steps. A National Security Council spokesman told the Post, under conditions of anonymity, that, quote, the NSC has regular and continuous meetings to coordinate a whole-of-government approach to foreign malign influence and election security. There continue to be briefings with the president, engagements at all levels of government, and coordination with state and local governments, end quote. There will no doubt be more backing and filling, clarification, and so on in the days to come. For example, President Trump, earlier this afternoon, was asked by a pool reporter at a cabinet meeting whether Russia was still targeting the U.S. Trump's response was, no. It's been widely and promptly noted that Director of National Intelligence Coates said as recently as Friday that the warning lights were flashing red with respect to the threat of Russian cyber attack. Finally, in another clarification, Slate retracts a story about a Verizon data breach the online publication ran early this week. Their report mistook an old story for a new one, mistaking a disputed account of a third-party breach from July 2017 for a newly breaking incident. 
Well, Slate said, we goofed. And no, Verizon wasn't breached. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Robert, welcome back. Um, you all recently published some information about Electrum. Take us through what you all found. Yeah, absolutely. So Electrum is the activity group, uh, the threat associated with the crash override malware that was deployed uh, against the Ukrainian uh, Kiev substation in 2016. So it was the first piece of malware specifically to be designed to disrupt electric power. And what was interesting to me about this case, besides you know, sort of the significance of it and, and diving into the capability and understanding all the things that it did, um, but what was interesting is the group is still active. So this activity group, if you will, is still going out and targeting other locations. We haven't seen any attacks to follow. We haven't seen you know, sort of pre-positioning of uh, crash override-like capability, um, but we've seen them absolutely target and breach um, other providers, other electric providers outside of Ukraine, including some water sites as well. And and I think this is, uh, you know, a reoccurring, continuing lesson in the community that it is a natural tendency of, of defenders to think about a big report getting disclosed or a big attack happening and the intel report comes out and we sort of have this idea that, and we're done. Well, we, we know now, you know, the report's published, we're finished. And, and that's not that's not the case. 
Um, these adversaries still obviously stay active, uh, find that report publishing is not necessarily even um, deterring to them, of course. It, but it just the start of getting the message out to people to take a look for this. And and what I really like about industrial control specifically in, in these type of threats that we track here is it highlights that just focusing on things like technical indicators are not going to be sufficient. The uh, electrum targeting of uh, one power site versus another and the capability they ultimately deploy for the specific industrial controls in that site are going to be pretty specific to those sites. It's going to be a lot of changes. And if we're just tracking IP addresses and hashes and things like that, it's not going to be sufficient. But when we track, the, track this higher level analysis, like Electrum as this activity group, we instead track their behaviors and their tradecraft, their methods, and the styles and patterns of infrastructure choices and styles and patterns of victims. And we move from the technical to the tradecraft. That's where we can actually absolutely make this scalable in terms of detection and focus and uh, insight. And, and that's pretty empowering as a defender. Now, is it that tradecraft that is that one of the elements that allows you to track them to know that you're dealing with the same group? Absolutely. So every every time an adversary does something, they generally leave kind of a human fingerprint behind. You know, the way they do it, um, the the way they configure their malware, the way they develop capabilities, the way they choose infrastructure. Um, you know, it's like if I I were to go through and make a, a persona. And, and, and start registering domains, maybe the way that I register the domains or the, the type of who is information that I put in it, maybe that would have a pattern. And, and I would position that it likely does because humans are creatures of patterns. And effectively, you do try to follow those patterns in tradecraft and look for uh, largely those methods versus just the technical components that are much easier to change. Now, in terms of misdirection, uh, when folks are, are are intentionally trying to throw you off the path, have have we reached a, a point where misdirection can usually be spotted? Is it uh, is it obvious, or is it still a tricky a tricky thing? Yeah, so misdirection and then sort of its sister discussion of like false flags, they're they're absolutely a tricky thing, but they're they're much more tricky thing for attribution than they are defense. Hmm. If I really want to know who did the attack then I very much have to factor in the idea that there might be some misdirection or even a false flag nature to this. If I'm trying to defend against the attack, if they use 100% overlap with tradecraft, 100% overlap with methods, and you know do everything that would really make it seem like it's, it's misdirection or false flag, it, it still doesn't matter because they still did the attack and they're still using the methods and tradecraft and tracking and, and I'm still doing defense. So the the... How versus the who changes the difficulty of the questions we're asking. In this case, false flag operations from a defense perspective are no different. Uh, It is only in the who that that begins to really matter. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.